Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film, and you're listening to the TalkHouse Film Podcast. There is a moment in today's conversation between Amber Tamblin and Aisha Tyler where they talk about how difficult it is in the entertainment industry to be more than one thing. However, the reason for their conversation is exactly because both of them have actively rejected Hollywood's notion that they are just actresses. Tamblin, who grew up on screen in General Hospital and is the title character in Joan of Arcadia, has increasingly shifted her focus to a long-held passion, poetry, releasing a number of volumes of her work, including last year's acclaimed Dark Sparkler, a collection themed around dead child actresses. Tyler first broke through as a recurring character on Friends and is still very busy as an actress, playing Dr. Tyra Lewis on Criminal Minds and voicing Agent Lana Kane on Archer. But she's also a panelist on the CBS daytime show The Talk, is the host of Whose Line Is It Anyway, has her own podcast, Girl on Guy, and has written a couple of books, including Self-Inflicted Wounds, Heartwarming Tales of Epic Humiliation. She's also been making strides for some time as a director and is about to start filming her first feature, Axis, which is in the final stages of its Kickstarter campaign. Tyler chose to speak to Tamlin for the TalkHouse Film Podcast, not only because they are friends, have the same initials, and are cut from the same smart, sassy cloth, but also because Tamlin's debut feature as director, Paint It Black, based on the novel by white Oleander author Janet Fitch, is set to premiere at the LA Film Festival in June, unless she was able to talk to Tyler about what to expect as she heads into production on Axis. In Amber and Aisha's very funny and entertaining conversation, the two talk about their respective paths to the director's chair, great LA movies and keeping up with the Kardashians, why Amber is Aisha's Oreo tit and Aisha is a sex bot, the happy accident that led to Amber getting Janet McTeer to drunkenly crawl around on the floor and shout at a stuffed polar bear, and much more. Okay, so uh, Amber, I asked you to do this with me, um, and I'm super excited. This is not my podcast. This is the Talk House Film Podcast. But I was excited because, A, I think you're the tits. Like, if there's a version of the tits that's three tits, you're that many tits. <laughs> I'm like the uh, Right, I'm the tit. You are, right? You're my extra tit, right? The one in the middle, the, the the nice one, the best one, the perkiest. I'm one. your Oreo tit. Oh my god, that's adorable. Can you imagine if you could go and find a lady with like two brown tits and one white tit in the middle, or vice versa? That'd be kind of amazing. You wouldn't know what to do with yourself. I wonder um, if we'd find our eggs if that's what would happen. God, I hope not. That would that would point to some really damaged DNA. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but I'm excited to do this because the, like when you and I sat down for my podcast, Girl on Guy, you had just, no, right, you just wrapped or were you just starting? I can't remember. I, I feel like I was just about to shoot it. Um, I was just about to film Paint It Black. I, I think I got the financing for it and... Uh, um, I watch, watch this is going to, this interview is going to come out and there's going to be some fan on the comments. It's like, um, that's not uh, really, I remember it differently. Episode. You were speaking of, I've listened back to it numerous times. I, you know what? I think, I think I saw you at that, at, um, that writing event. Yeah. The Penn Center Awards. The Penn Center Awards. And you were about to shoot it then. And then when I had you on my show, you were just about to go into post. Okay. Well, then that's there you go. Happened. There you go. That's I, I've, I've, un, I've unnerded nerd stand down. So, um, I guess, you know, since I'm behind you, since I'm just about to shoot something, I just want to ask you about what that experience was like, because you're such a prolific writer. And what, and I wonder, like, what was the process that brought you to making that particular film and making that your, it was your first film, that's your directorial debut, right? Yeah, yeah, it was my first film. Um, you know, I, I feel like it was um, almost a decade-long uh, 
experiment in not accepting the word no. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I felt like, I feel like, so originally the book was given to me in 2005 by Amy Poehler. Um, she gave me the, the novel Paint It Black, which is um, written by uh, Janet Fitch. And, uh, she and I, she's also the writer of White Oleander, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. And, I, and I just, I, I had a feeling that I had never had before with reading a novel, um, mm-hmm. which was that there was this sort of parallel cinematic story that was going on. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, or that I saw rather, that did, didn't necessarily mean that I was like, these, this exact story is what I want to turn into a movie or I see it as a movie. But I felt like there was an emotionality to the film or to the book rather that I had hadn't really seen in film, which was this idea of really dangerous women, um, emotionally and otherwise, uh, you know, who were also, um, kind of, uh, askew on the moral compass. Um, and I, I was just really sort of fascinated by that. And, uh, and so I spent the better part of a, you know, seven years, I would say, um, you know, getting the writer to give me the rights, which she didn't want to do. And, uh, and then, you know, getting financing, which was sort of all upon me as well to put together a lookbook and create this whole giant thing. I mean, as you know, with your film right now, the process of crowdfunding and, uh, you know, and garnering that type of support, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it was a long journey, but the actual shooting itself, I think, changed me creatively uh, forever. I think it really was a moment in my life in which I went, oh, wow, I've always been on the other side of this um, Mm -hmm. and felt like I had so much to say but wasn't really sure how to say it to, frankly, uh, older white men, which is, I'd say, 99% of the experience I've ever had with directors. I think maybe I've worked with two female directors and certainly no women of color. So... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was it was a totally different experience for me, and a test of, um, uh, you know, giving myself a permission that I had always wanted, but never really knew how to um, fully enjoy or uh, experience. Right. I think there is something about the directorial process that unlocks a different set. I don't know if it's skills, but like the way that you see crafting something, putting something together. It's yeah. just a different, it's a different angle that you're looking at everything at. And I feel like you, you find out right away in that process, whether this is something that you flourish in or whether this is something that you find like, you know, punitive or, or, or burdensome. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think either yeah. you blossom or you go, oh shit, too many, too many questions. <laughs> There's, yeah, you know what I mean? You know, one of the, it's going to be interesting for you too. Like, I can't wait to, to talk to you in post once you're editing it, because one of the things I found too, and I don't know, is, is your film, your, your, is your film, did, is it something you wrote or, or how did that come no. about? No, so it's a about. totally different process than yours. Um, I, I'm trying to think of when we last spoke. Like I had, I had the same thing where I knew for like a long time that I wanted to direct and uh, had a project that I was developing like over a decade ago um, that John Woo was set to executive produce. And I was super excited. I, I'd written it and I was going to be in it. We were going to find other people to do the rest of the stuff. But every time we would have these meetings about it, I would be so like detailed and, and oh intimate God, with it. Exactly. We're going to talk right? about it in a second. Like, but I was like, I see this and I see this and it needs to be shot like this and I want it to be like that. And they, they were lovely. They were like, you know, this is clearly something you should be directing. You're so passionate about it. You have such a clarity about it. And I was like, great. So I'm, you know, at this point, you know, like mid twenties, African-American actress trying to direct what was going to be something like a six or $10 million action movie. I mean, I couldn't even, I could not even get anybody to like pull over it, like on the bus to pick me up. Do you know what I mean? Like it was just not going to happen. So I just, 
decided I was going to go away and like build up my skill set. So I started shadowing like every movie I was on, every show I was on, I would shadow and I would say, hey, can I come in when I'm not working? I would just show up on days I wasn't working and just shadow whatever director was on an episode. I called on my friends and said, can I come, you know, shadow you? I like ended up shadowing, um, uh, oh God, I'm having a, I'm having a stroke. Uh, I ended up shadowing on The Wire on 24. And so that was like a process of me just like kind of following people around and asking questions and then and trying to not just be an actor who showed up and hit their mark. You know what I mean? Really trying to take in everything that was happening around me. And then um, two years ago, so like summer of 2014, I was like also, I was working a lot and I was like, I'm too work focused. I'm not like having enough adventures or living, I'm not being human anymore. Just like going to work and coming home. So I'm going to start to have more adventures. And I was at Comic Con. Creative either. Like, yeah, being, not, not living. Like you can't be yeah. creative if you don't have anything going into your yeah. body that's like non-work related. Do you know what I mean? I think that's, I think that's a really a thing that people um, misunderstand about our business too. And like, you know, they, they would assume that you or I are incredibly creative people. We are for sure. But there is a sort of... Um, staleness to to doing something for so long and then you know you forget about the things that push you and scare you and um you know you forget how uh, how much goes on in your head how much you imagine and how much creatively you want to do and so i think for a lot of, for uh, certainly for me i feel like there's a sense of like well i already have all this amazing stuff like why do i need to pile on more like why do i need to direct a movie right um, right but but actually, i do think that's what you really want to do that's exactly what you need. Do you know what I mean? And I, I had this thing where I was, there was this sameness to my life where I was getting into my car and driving to set and acting and then coming home and then eating kale salad and going to the gym and then driving to set. You know what I mean? I was like, I'm going to die. Like, I'm going like to die creatively. Oh my God, guys, it was just nothing but pegging and, <laughs> and, 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 and water play. So I, uh, so, uh, John Logan, who created Penny Dreadful, I met him at Comic-Con and I was like a huge fan of that show. And um, I was just like, you know, plotting about it. He's like, why don't you come visit set? And you know, people are always telling you to do that. And you're like, yeah, I'll do that. And like, never fucking happens. I was like, fuck that, I'm going. (laughs) And his show shoots in Ireland. So in Dublin, and I was like, I'm fucking going. I've never, I've never traveled abroad on my own. I was like, I'm going to go to fucking Dublin by myself. I'm going to shadow on that show. I'm going to go shadow on anything else that's over there because it's a long flight. I might as well get my money's worth. And I called the show Vikings and I said, hey, you don't know me from Adam. Can I come hang out on your set? And they were like so gracious and lovely. So I just went over there and I shadowed on both shows. I visited Penny Dreadful. I shadowed on Vikings. And I met all these lovely Irish actors over there. And two of them, one was an, an actor... Uh, writer, actor, one was when a writer, an actor, composer were like, we want to do a short film. Do you want to direct it in Ireland? And I think when someone offers you um, the opportunity to direct in another country, you just fucking say yes. You know what I mean? Say yes. And I was, I was definitely going through the Shonda Rhimes year of yes before she wrote the book. I was like, yes, yes to everything. Yes to new things that might terrify me. So I, I, they wrote this short, which I loved. And I, was working and the they, they the the two guys that were working on it, especially the writer who ended up producing it, prepped everything for me. I had like two Skype calls with the DP. I showed up the day before we shot. I had like one one walking text out and then we shot. And it was like the best three sleepless days of my entire life. Do you know what I mean? I was so happy, like so yeah. happy. Even when things weren't going well, I was happy. You know, everything about it was just so energizing. And I think that was the piece where I was like, oh, 
like, I think it was nice that I had the opportunity to test it out, like on my shorts, because I was like, okay, yeah, now I definitely not just do I want to do a feature, but I'm like, I'm ready to do a feature. Like there was no point on set where I was like, oh shit, I don't know how to answer this question. And that was really nice. Cause I was like, what if I get there? And I don't know what the fuck. Right. But right. I felt like, I mean, I felt like you always, there's always some doubt in everybody's mind artistically or even technically, but I feel like I never was like, how am I going to figure out how to do this? I was like, of course I'm going to figure it out. And of course I love talking to actors. And of course I love figuring out how to make the scene better. And of course I want to talk to you about angles. Like everything was so fun. And then that same writer wrote this feature and that's how it came to me. He wrote a feature and um, it's about an Irish expatriate living in LA and it kind of felt like right to me, setting-wise, time-wise. And the story about somebody who feels like like maybe a fish out of water, even with success. And I don't know if you've experienced that, like you've got some success in your life, but you still feel a little bit like an alien in this world. That's a, a, a lot at the core of this, someone who's, has success in this town, but has the result has been that he's kind of self-destructed a little bit and he doesn't really feel like he's of either this place or or home. He's kind of in a in-between space. Right, right. It's lovely and it's it's sweet and very emotional and it's all set in a car. So that's the problem. Oh, that that's kind of cool. That'll that'll be an, that'll give you uh, some some interesting um, boundaries with which you can can work within. I asked too because I, you know, for me it was so interesting um, uh, the difference between, uh, you know, and in my case it was it, it was the adaptation of a novel. But there's, you probably found this even on a short film. But there's so much. There's it's such a different feeling what happens between the script that you go from as a director and then once you get into the editing room the film that comes out on the other mm-hmm. side. Oh my god, totally. It's its own it's its own iteration of um of uh it's got its own trajectory, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and sometimes uh that's, you know, playing around in the editing room um is where you really find the true film that you were meant to make, you know? Uh, I want to ask you about, really more about that because I just went through that on my short where like I was cutting it. And I was like, oh, this isn't what I wanted at all. This isn't what, oh my God, this is so much better than what I hoped. Yeah. And I wonder if you had that, like, you know, it, they, you've heard this way. They say like, there's one movie on the page and then there's another movie when you shoot it and then it becomes a third movie when you cut it. And I wonder if for you that like if, if that bore out for you and by the time you got to post, were there, th- were there magical things that happened for you that you didn't expect? Cause I also like it. So you know those, remember those old paintings where you look at them for a really long time and they're nothing. And then they're a giraffe. Yeah. That's what I felt like editing was for me. <laughs> you know, that makes sense. And I thought we had a pretty, uh, my, my co-writer and I, Ed Doughty, that we'd written a pretty strong, you know, a uh, script about the, you know, the em- emotional interior lives of these two crazy women who were in a state of grief and just like drunk all the time and trying to kill each other. Sounds like a good time, actually. <laughs> That's going to be you and me next Wednesday. Yes, it um, will be. It's, you know, it, we, I found out that, that the strength really relied <clears throat> more in what we didn't say on the screen and what we implied in the implications of certain moments uh, and letting letting people sort of take what they wanted from that and feel what they wanted from that and sort of glean uh, from those experiences. And that's just something that, you know, you have to have the strength in an editing room to uh, really let your ego go, um, to really let the, the fear of like, but this scene I love so much and, um, you know, and this is such a great moment and this does work, you know, however you feel, you're blind to the truth of what really does feel. And and overall, I would say the entire filming experience was 
such a such an instinct gut level experience, mm-hmm. unlike anything that I've used before, where even, you know, when you're talking about shots and the way in which you want to do things, and let's say like you're running out of time, you're running out of, you know, you've got to finish up, you've got to wrap the scene because you've still got two more scenes. There was a real sense of like, okay, if I feel pressured, if I feel like I'm put in a corner and there's not a lot of time left or I need to make a decision and everyone's looking at me to make the decision, I would directly turn it to the instinct, to the thing that was trained to think about, you know, what was the, what was, what was the more dangerous of the ideas? What was the less safe thing to do? How could I be less of a director who painted by numbers? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Because no matter what, as long as I was getting the language in, you know, traditional shots or whatever, I could always find space to, to add into that and create something that I might want to use later that I hadn't even thought about. For instance, there's a moment in the film, uh, we had a little bit of extra time, like, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes at the end of this one shooting day. And we put Janet McTeer in a, um, uh, like just a, there's this big long hallway in this mansion that she lives in and we put her in this silk robe and I gave her a drink and I just said, just go in the other room and be drunk and upset. And so we did this long lens down at the end of the hallway visual of her yelling at a, at a stuffed polar bear at a taxidermied polar bear she's got in her house. And then I'm like yelling across the room. I'm like, Janet, get down on all fours, like crawl around. You lost something, an earring on the ground. And so she's crawling on the ground, holding a drink in her hands. It's nuts. And it made it into the movie. But I think, you know, having moments like that, and that's one of many that ended up in the film, you know, thinking on your feet, you know, thinking instinctually, uh, as you would like with a writer or probably for you, like improv too, you Mm -hmm, know, when something mm -hmm. just comes to your head and you're like, I know that's going to kill. I know that's going to kill. Also, it kind of, it, 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 it like coalesces kind of without like forethought, you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah. God, this would be great. I don't know where this came from, but this is going to yeah. be magical. Yeah, and yeah. surrendering to that, I think. Yeah, you know, like and that doesn't necessarily mean, hey, let's put a whole scene in like I just mentioned. I mean, that's, as you know, that's real luck if you get an extra 15 minutes at the end of a day. Um, but there are things I think within the scenes that, that people can find and that I had real fun doing, playing around with the actors and letting them, you know, uh, do things that were, that, that felt a little bit different. Mm-hmm. I think also, like, there is a, there's a discipline to that, not just in the editing room, but on set, of I trust myself, I trust the material, yeah. I trust the people around me, to, because I think people direct from fear when they don't either trust their team or trust their own artistic instincts. So they do what they've seen, and they do what they know, because they're afraid of doing something radical that might not work. But I mean, it's always, those, it's always the happy accidents that feel the most dynamic and that was captivating. Like the thing I've seen in so many films and I tried not to do it in my short and I definitely don't want to do in this film, which is this like constant emotion of manipulation of people through music. Like uh, like telling people how to feel every minute of a movie because you're so worried they're not going to miss your point. I mean, like if you can't tell the story with just the basic elements of a scene and music is really important in a movie, of course. Yes. And, you know, it, it, and if it, you know, my short was about a musician. So the music was important. But I think the silence between the music made the music that did make it into the movie much more meaningful and much more impactful. And I think a lot of other, I had to really say to myself, like, you don't need to tell people how to feel here. Like, they're going to know. Or maybe they're going to feel seven different ways, and that's okay, too. Like, not everybody needs to walk out of this experience with the same set of feelings. You know what I mean? Like, they can take it eight ways, which I think is... Just when you were saying that it requires a certain amount of discipline to let the viewer make their own decisions about yeah, how to feel about your art. 
one of the things that I um, can really recommend to you, and it was, uh, it was, you know, I had some really great producers as well that worked on my film, um, Steve Buscemi and Stanley Tucci's company and their partner, Ren Arthur, and uh, just some really rad lady producers who said, you know what, we're going to do a lot of test screenings because mm-hmm. the film is also like a Bergman film. It's like... Um, you know, uh, the hunger or sunset Boulevard or persona. It's, it's a little, it's a little out there and it's a little, mm-hmm. um, you know, borders very delicately on a melodrama between melodrama mm-hmm. and noir. So mm-hmm. they were like, you know, they, they really said it's, it's smart. You want to bring not just anybody in, but you want to bring groups of people in who can help see this film and see what it needs or what it doesn't need. And that, those were some of the most helpful experiences um, and one of the things I found was exactly what you just said, which is that I had gone a little overboard with the music. And we had we have we had an amazing um, uh, composer. We had um, uh, this guy Mac McCoffin from Superchunk, uh, who normally does, and he you know he founded Merge Records, and he's really known for like punk music and mm-hmm. uh, you know being sort of a staple within the indie indie punk world. And um, he created this such a such an intense. Um, melodic, gorgeous, simple sound, but I had laced it through the entire film. And it was really, I had like a lot of people who had said, you know, you don't need any music in this at all. Uh, in fact, Neil Butte was the one, the first one that came to a screening. And he said to me, this movie's really powerful. And I dare you to, uh, you know, have the, show the whole film without, um, without any music, just try it. Because I think these scenes work without it, and you're telling the audience how to feel. Um, he said those exact same words, mm-hmm. and I totally mm-hmm. agree. Wow. And so, you know, what, well, two things. First is, what was the result of that? Like, how much did you pull back? Did you pull back more than you were comfortable or less than you were comfortable? I, I took out, I, did, I took his, um, his suggestions. That was the thing, is that I was very... I was very open and I apparently, you know, that may not always be the case um, for some people, but I was, I was really open to people's, especially if I heard, I think we did maybe 12 screenings, 12 Mm -hmm. screenings while editing, 12 to 15. Smart. And we would ask people like afterwards, we'd sit and have notes and believe me, those first couple were, I felt like my stomach. Oh God. Uh, I just sitting in a room watching people watch your project. I, I like, I literally had to vomit for hours after that. (laughs) Hours. I couldn't, I couldn't get like that feeling to go away. Yeah. And that, but that's why you get people who you trust, you know, like if, if we'd done this in LA, you would have easily been a person I would have brought in. Like you're not going to bring in just any random person. You want to bring someone who understands that you're not this is not a finished product. You're looking to find out its strengths and its major weaknesses and figure those things out and make it a stronger film. So I, I took almost all of the music out and, and Neil was right. He was absolutely right. And uh, what I realized within that, within that was that the problem was within the sentimentality of the sound. So mm-hmm. I went back to Mac, my, my editor and I went back to Mac and we said, let's, let's go more for um, like boards of Canada or um, let's go more towards weird 80s synth like as if we're scoring the dark crystal mm-hmm. you know just mm-hmm. make it let's make it more on the um, uh, like the the ominous mysterious side than sentimental mm-hmm. and with this story you know which is about a young man who kills himself and the two women he leaves behind the girlfriend and the mother and they become obsessed with each other in this like really unhealthy relationship 
sentimentality is the last thing we wanted in this in the sound so then Mac created the like a couple signature pieces that are in very specific places and it was like a t- all of a sudden without even cutting without even touching the actual uh, you know frames of the film it had become a completely different film with the mm-hmm. type of music and sound that we had put in the very specific places that it demanded to be mm-hmm. And it's amazing how tiny adjustments like that can completely change a film. Yeah. Completely yeah. change a film. What um, is, I want to ask you, what, what do you think for you right now, um, is the, what's the thing you're most nervous about or thinking about the most out of everything with your, you know, with pre-production? And, and I mean, you're about to shoot like any, any day four now. Weeks, four you know, weeks from now. Four and I'm freaking out about, there's so many things I'm freaking out about. How do I, how do I pull one out? I mean, you know, like, interestingly enough, like on the, uh, like at the, at the base, I feel confident I'm going to get everything done. Like, I feel really good about that. I have a good team with me, like really hardworking people. I'm a machine and I don't, that's not even a, like a, I'm not to my own horn. I'm just a sick person. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, up too late, up too early, always on my computer. Like, I, I have no doubt that, like, that, like the, the tactical parts of it will get done. I guess the thing I'm most anxious about, or at least thinking about the most, is finding a more interesting way to tell the story. I don't want to be, I don't want to be, like, radical for radicalism's sake, but I want to make, inter- it's, it's all in a car. And to me, that's an opportunity, not a limitation. Like, I feel like that, we, we know what we're working with, so now it's like, what, a magical things can we do with this space? Right. And, you know, the kind of the conventions of filmmaking, you know, master, master coverage, coverage, like we don't have to worry about that stuff. It's just one person in this car. And so I'm thinking about how do we make people feel like they're in the car with this person in a way that feels intimate and close and familiar, but yet a little disruptive. I want, be- I want it to be beautiful and how do I do that when I also am limited, you know, in terms of my space? And we can't just rely on vistas or, you know, we, we don't have, we have, we have to do, we have to get angels to dance on the head of a pin. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So I, I'm not worried about that so much as just thinking very hard about what choices to make. Um, and right. then, you know, it's one actor for a whole movie and, um, and I have infinite confidence in my lead, but I also... Have you cast, who's your lead? Uh, so he is an Irish actor. He's really well known in Ireland. He's not well known here. His name is Emmett Hughes, and he is like kind of like he has like an Edward Burns type of like backstory. Nice. He wrote and produced and directed his first feature. He was in it. He did everything himself. He like made the spaghetti. He's he's dressed all the actors with his own clothes. You know what I mean? It's like one of those things where like every day he's like, this movie's about to fall apart. We're never going to get it done. Um, got it done. And then, you know, ended up being this festival darling and won a bunch of awards. And, and so this is his second, this is his second feature that he wrote and then brought to me. Wow. We're going to do it like a play, which I also really like. Essentially, we're going to shoot the whole film every day. Right. All the way through, wow. which I think is a heavy lift for an actor. But I mean, you know, I've done theater, you've done theater, you can do it. You can, you know, you're on stage for two hours in a play. It doesn't feel burdensome when you're doing a play. Yeah. Somehow it feels like a lot to do when you're doing a film. And I'm really working on why it seems that way. I'm like, oh God, this is crazy. It's typically because you're just setting and resetting and setting and resetting, but we're essentially going to kind of like set up our whole, like, our, do, like set our whole camera array on the first day and then only adjust from day to day rather than wow. coming up with new Wow, well, you're going to shoot the whole film uh, every single day. Every single day for six days. Wow. And then, on the, and then we have bookended days to get, like, the open and the close of the movie, which are the only parts of the film that don't take place inside the car. 
Wow. Uh, yeah. Are there other examples of people who have who have shot that way that you know of? You know, I I don't know, and I should actually look at it and see if I can find out what kind of limitations and issues they may have had. Like I know that Locke, which was also a film set in a car, they shot oh. that in five days, but I'm not oh. quite sure how they did that film. I think actually I think they might have done it similarly because they had all their actors. Um, they had more money than I do. <laughs> they had all their <laughs> actors like there every day on the actual phone with with Tom Hardy. I right. can't afford that, and and also the people that are agreed to do my movie all have like big separate lives and the amount of money I'm paying, they can't kind of drop everything for 10 days to just do this, which is fine. So we're pre-recording them. We'll have somebody read across from the actor every day. How did you creatively come to this as an idea uh, as far as like how how to shoot it? How did that actually, because it's such an interesting, great idea, considering, considering again, you don't have to move locations. You're like, you're kind of set. So yeah. how did that, that idea come to you? Um, that was, uh, you know, th- that was essentially my idea of shooting it all the way through every day. And it, it came from the fact that I knew we were going to have to do it in a constrained amount of time. And I was worried about matching. I was really worried about matching. The movie is going to go essentially like day to night. It'll go like afternoon to evening. So I was like, uh, how do I? Continuity is for pussies. I love you so much. I, I feel exactly the same way. Just fucking listen to the story. Stop looking at the background. <laughs> um, Cares but- about the face. Exactly. So he's got a, so he's having a tie and he doesn't have a necktie. Are you feeling things right now? Ass. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so to do that, we're kind of doing this, like a, almost a real time unfolding of a story that goes from like essentially af- like morning to evening. If we start shooting every day at the same time or at, le- at around the same time and we finish every day at the same time, we have a, and we run the same driving course, we will get essentially the same light every day. The way they dealt with it on Locke was they shot at night. But I really want LA to be a character in this movie. I really want people to feel what it's like to live in LA, to drive in LA, to live in your car, to turn your car into your office and your bedroom and your therapist's office and your So that's so funny. Cafeteria. My my, um, my film is also very much an LA-centric film. In, in my... Uh, you know, um, proposal for the film. That was one of the things that I said is that LA is a third character in the film. There's the, there's the girlfriend, there's the mother, and then there's Los Angeles. This, this, you know, this idea of, of this, this city that has so much, um, institutionalized, you know, uh, class in it with the rich people living up on the hills. And then you've got, you know, down below in Echo Park and down on the, the areas of Sunset Boulevard and Alvarado and all those things. And so I, I totally get what you're saying about wanting that to be um, a huge part of it. And I also found that having, shooting a lot of B-roll of stuff um, mm-hmm. was very, very helpful um, for transitional moments in the movie. Uh, that was like, that was something that I hadn't fully considered um, until we yeah. were there. And yeah. it's like, oh, there's a hawk eating a dead mouse on a, like just ripping a mouse's guts open on a- God, that's you know, awesome. On a wire, like sh- shoot that thing, shoot it. Um, yeah, and that's, so we, that's all, okay. it was also like finding those magical things, like those unstudied things. I think LA always, LA looks the same all the time in movies and trying to find a true. different LA was really important to me. And just hearing, I mean, I know you and I know like how you think. And I, I just, you know, there's just like, like there's another beautiful, uglier, more wonderful, more complex LA than I think we see in movies so I'm yeah. excited to see your version of that. Did you see that film, um, Tangerine? 
I did. Oh, I love that, it. That's in Los Angeles, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it's beautiful and yeah. so not like just all of the parts of LA that nobody ever sees. It's great. I mean, yeah. it takes place in a very tiny corridor. It's mostly along Santa Monica, the Santa Monica corridor, kind of like uh, like Highland East. Yeah, it's so it's so sweet and like familiar if you live here. I loved it. And you know what, what other movie I really loved about LA that was a little bit more kind of like glossy and elevated, but I still really enjoyed it was Drive. I felt like- I didn't see Drive. It's, um, it's, it's, I'm it's, a loser, I need to see that. No, you're not. You have like shit going on, stuff you're doing in like, a life. But um, it is a very, it's, I also really liked that Drive. That LA, again, is not kind of like Palm Trees and Sunset. And, and you know, the lead character and the love interest are, you know, poor and they live kind of in East Los Angeles. And so you, dif- you definitely see a different LA in that. It's very sweet. Um, right. Yeah. I also just think, like, the Kardashians is just, like, a really great example of, like, shooting in, like, LA. And I just think that they have, like, such great shots. And, like, I just really love, like, the tone of that show. The tone, like, the look and the feel, right? And they're, they're, so, they're like, filmed. Who's, like, the director of photography on that film? I just got to know. <laughs> Bill Pope. Bill Pope, she'd said. <laughs> Oh my God. That's the thing. There's also like, there's like a a wave of just like utter crap, like (laughs) reinforcing everybody's idea about what it's like. Like, like it's it's like making LA look like Miami fucking beach or something like that. Yeah, it's very true. Which for like 99.999% of Los Angelinos do not live up in the hills and are kind of like mousing along this like superheated corridor of asphalt trying to like pay the rent and <laughs> raise their kids. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's, it, I think in that way, like, I mean, you grew up here, but uh, I moved here and I, I really didn't fall in love with LA until recently. And now I really, really love it. In a, in a, in a, in a way I thought I never would. I, I tolerated it for a long time, you know? And now I feel like I, I know it more fully. And I, it's like a relationship. Like the more you know about somebody, eventually like their darkness is what appeals to you the most. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's, if you can accept their darkness, you know you really love them, you know? For me, for me, it's very much like, this is so strange, but, you know, like a small town that I just wanted to get out of. I, it doesn't sound, I know that won't sound right to some people who are like, Los Angeles, a small town. But, you know, I I was I was born there. I was third generation from Los Angeles. I live in New York now, but um, uh, I'm not telling you because I know, I know you know that. Just, but I know. Uh, people that are listening out there. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I would take my husband, David, like, I remember the first time he came to my place in Venice and, um, he hates LA. LA. Oh God. He oh, can't even God, find so words to articulate. You know, I'm, his I'm like driving. Of- yeah. I'm like driving past my parents' apartment in Santa Monica. I'm like, and here's where I was born and raised. They still live here. And then, you know, drive up another two blocks. I'm like, and here's where I gave my first hand job and oh, then drive up another two story. blocks. Yeah, and like you know, and it just keeps going on and on, uh, and then you know, I, there I am, like literally, I bought a house six blocks from my parents, and anyone who knows me knows that. Um, and so there's a sense of like you know, leaving the place that's um, that felt like a small town to me. So my my relationship with LA is is very different, but I think I also take it for granted because of that. So like mm-hmm. when I was setting out to, to do this movie, I had to think in those same terms that you did of how can I see this this city differently? How can I show it differently? What are the things that I take for granted on a daily basis because I'm from here uh, that, that I overlook? Um, or things that maybe I see every day that nobody else sees just because I've lived here for so long. Um, how can I show people those, those things? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the smog-filled sunsets. 
Yes, exactly. That's tinged uh, the, the the orange color of your tears, um, and then and then the strange beauty, right? Like like there is just this strange beauty that this place has. Like sometimes if you're going down Las Feliz on the three days where there's actual like visual clarity in LA and you can see the mountains, like the Santa Monica mountains or whatever yes. those mountains are, and they're tipped in snow and you think you're in Denver for like a moment, you know, like yeah. it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to try to unpack a place that has so many dreams associated with it. And, you know? and also like to convey, this is something I thought about a lot with making my film as well, but how do you convey the way Los Angeles smells? Yes, the way amazing. it feels. And people don't know that, but like every time I get off a plane at LAX and I come, I get, instantly there's this, there's this endemic scent that the mm-hmm. city has, which is, you know, a combination of, of many things, including night blooming jasmine and, um, the sleeping oh. bags of homeless people. Yes, but, and the kind of t- uh, t- t- gently falling soot. Um, yes, yes exactly. and the, the ghosts of people's broken dreams. <laughs> tons and tons of Botox, um, <laughs> butt implants. The smell of butt implants. How can we convey that in your burst, film? Burst butt, butt implants. What does that smell burst like? Burst butt implants. How can we convey that? <laughs> it is. It's. It's. I don't know. It has. It's. It's. There's nothing like it in the world. Okay, we should try to wrap it up. But I have one question for you. Yeah. Um, and I think it's having gone through this process. You were saying in the beginning of our conversation that you felt like it had changed you. Mm-hmm. How has it changed you, like as an artist or a writer? I think uh, you know. I'll speak a little bit to that thing you said in the beginning too, which is just, you know, when you said um, that you had such a specific idea of how you wanted this movie to be made and people around you saw it before you did. Uh, People around you were going, you should direct this, right? And I had a very similar experience. There was another female director attached to do this, to do my film for almost, for close to a year. And she was the one that finally said to me after we butt heads several times creatively, she was like, what are you waiting for? You know, and God, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a real question. And I and I thought like, oh, no, 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 no. I I don't know how to do that. Um, and and you know, for me, there was this real this real awakening, this real sense of uh, why am I waiting for permission? Um, everybody learns on the job. Everyone figures out what they're doing for the most part while they're doing it. Um, you know, that's the process of life. And what is it that's that I'm waiting for? Exactly mm-hmm. that question. So, so I think I think for me the just doing it and, and doing it the way that I had always seen it and, and being as daring as I could uh, was my way of, of, uh, of, of answering that question, um, mm-hmm. of, of not waiting any longer um, and just really sort of jumping into that and, and feeling the sense of um, uh, control over my art and control over the things that I wanted to be a part of. Um, you know, and which has largely to do with not asking permission um, from the rest of the world with what you with what you want to do and what you want to say and how mm-hmm. you want to say it. Mm-hmm. I need to tell you something, which is I'm really upset we're doing this on Skype and not a person because I would be totally making out with you right now <laughs> because <laughs> I just gave like a speech. Totally putting on Frank Ocean as soon right? as just hit right? <laughs> just and boosh lights down like magically you already had the lights set to go down because <laughs> I just gave a speech and people were like what would you get what advice were you would you give and I was like stop waiting for other people to give you permission yeah. give yourself permission you yeah. can you can YouTube there's a YouTube video to tell you how to do it I mean you know what I mean you can figure out how to do it but don't wait for somebody else to tell you that your vision is good enough like just go you know yeah. 
really is an exercise in ignoring the word no. And, you know, as, as, as women in this business, you hear it constantly because you're kind of only seen as one thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's important. It's, it's, you got to keep it as a mantra. I tell, I tell everyone same thing, like young students when I'm teaching or whatever, just the same thing of like, do not, do not accept that. It is not acceptable, uh, in your, in going forward. You must, mm-hmm. you know, you must really, uh, do exactly what you want to do and how you want to do it. Right. And I, that's why, at least from my end, I, I didn't have the luxury of, of waiting for a studio to figure out what, how, you know, yeah, what, how, sure. when they were going to give me permission. And that's why I kickstarted my movie. Cause I was like, look, I'm going to know in a week or two, whether I'm making a movie or not. And then if people, enough people are excited about it, I'm going to get to go make it. And I don't have to wait for somebody in a suit to tell me why it's not going to work. Yeah. And, the, and, the ex- and the experience is yours, you know, and there's that, there's that sense of like, you know, even owning your, our own failures, like if it hadn't gone through or if I wasn't able to get financing for my movie, you know, or even if I'd made a bad film, like whatever that is, the process is inherently mine and it belongs to me. And that makes me work, you know, 10 times harder because I know that those things, the successes and the failures belong to me as opposed to being given to me. And that's mm-hmm. the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Then that, that I think makes all the difference in the world uh, with, with, with whatever you're doing creatively. Yeah. Well, I'm, this is literally, every time I talk to you, I'm just so, <laughs> so excited. Uh, and your movie's debuting at the LA Film Festival in May. In, in June. May. In June. June. June 3rd. Yeah. Oh, that's, I know, because that's because I'm shooting that day, so I was freaking out. But if, I, if, I'm, if I'm wrapped, I'm coming. And, yeah. um, and no matter and what, I'm coming, I'm coming to your set. Come to the set. I... Come to my set. I can't wait to see you. And, uh, and people can visit my Kickstarter right now, which is up until May 5th. And uh, we're, we're awesome. Let's just say that about it. I think we're pretty great. I think, I think we're pretty, pretty good. Great. I think we're good. I think we're, we're a good team. Uh, okay, we're done. Yay! Thanks for Yay! This is Nick Dawson from TalkHouse Film, and you've been listening to Amber Tamblin and Aisha Tyler on the TalkHouse Film podcast. Before you do anything else, visit Kickstarter to help Aisha fund Axis. Kickstarter.com slash projects slash Axis Film slash Axis. This episode was engineered and edited by Mark Yoshizumi. The podcast producer is Elia Einhorn. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit thetalkhouse.com slash film. Subscribe to TalkHouse Film and TalkHouse Music Podcasts on iTunes, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review if you can. (laughs) Do we hang up now? I don't know.